What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today, we're off on an exploration of myth, legend, and some real world history too. And we'll be finding the places where all three meet, which is more often than you might think. Our guests today are two authors in conversation. Dr. Amy Jeffs, art historian, writer and printmaker, whose recent book, Storyland, A New Mythology of Britain, is a retelling of 30 medieval myths and legends that dominated the popular consciousness in the British Isles up to around the time of the Norman Conquest in the 11th century. Her book is brought to life by Amy's own distinctive prints. Amy is joined by Charlotte Higgins, author and journalist. She's The Guardian's chief culture writer whose new book is Greek Myths and New Retelling. The book collects the fantastical tales of ancient Greece with those stories reimagined and told from the perspectives of women. It's also beautifully illustrated by British Turner Prize winning painter Chris Affili. Let's join the discussion. Here's Amy Jeffs and Charlotte Higgins in conversation. Amy, it's so nice to meet you virtually. I kind of feel like our books have met each other because they're sitting next to each other in every Waterstones up and down the land, which is very nice for us. If for those of you that don't know the covers of our books, they both have female mythic figures on the cover in illustrated form and they seem to point at each other if they are side by side on the bookshelf which I think is a wonderful expression of solidarity. They do seem to gesture to each other in this wonderful way. I've not illustrated my own book. I'm in awe of the fact that you're such a kind of incredible writer and such an incredible artist. My book is illustrated very beautifully by um, Chris Afili. They are wonderful illustrations. um, Oh I'm so lucky. Mm -hmm. I am so lucky. (laughs) But I'm so excited that we're able to talk finally because I'm just an absolute sucker personally for myths of ancient Britain. I feel like I've been wanting this kind of book for a long time that brings stories from multiple sources together into one wonderful narrative and that you've absolutely presented that. But I just, I was curious to know, how did you first encounter these kind of stories, which, um, you know, they're from seriously disparate sources, right? Your source material is everything from... Norse sagas to medieval kind of um, travelogues and mythography. So how did you get into these kind of narratives? Uh, I think there's probably three different parts of my career that introduced me to these different sources. The way it all started is that when I was 18 years old, going off to Cambridge to study Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic, which is a bit like classics for Northwestern Europe. I once really upset a classicist by saying that <laughs> she was not happy with that comparison. But um, yes, it's, uh, you know, we studied literature, history, 
art. We did a course on codicology, so this construction of manuscripts and paleographies, the history of medieval scripts, which were very formalized. I just loved this whole world. I loved Old English poetry and Old Norse poetry, so especially the poetic Edda and the Old English elegies, which are so beautifully wrought, but also they they hint at larger stories that might well be lost. Uh, they seem to survive in some some sort of prose retellings of so 12th century Iceland and uh, especially in relation to the, the Norse stuff. But you don't know whether you're really getting the, the original story, not that there is such a thing as the original story, but that really, that was when I was hooked. And then during my PhD, I spent some time at the British Museum digitizing pilgrim souvenirs and secular badges. That really crystallized my interest in saints' lives, these kind of, this is the magical realism of the saint's life and the fact that, you know, these, the, um, the rootedness in the landscape that these stories have, where these saints are from and where their bones now lie is so important to their stories. So that really appealed to me as somebody who's always loved the great outdoors. And uh, the third thing was just the, the, the history of the kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth. There was a French retelling of that in the manuscript I, I focused on for my PhD, and, uh, and it was heavily illustrated. So the idea of illustrating Britain's origin myth came from there. It's so fascinating. I mean, th this is a whole different world for me, although I have to say that I have read some of your source material because before this book, I wrote a book called Under Another Sky, which is about the idea of Roman Britain and the way Roman Britain has resonated in British culture and on literature and landscape and ideas about nationhood and stuff like that. And so when I was writing that book, I did read some of your, what I think of as your friends. Like Gildas. Um, Jeffrey Monmouth, Gerald of Wales. Oh, yes. John of Fordham. Yeah, yeah. Gildas, Nellians, all those people. So I kind of feel like there is this lovely common current. The other thing is that it feels like every Western European nation really has got an origin myth that connects it to Troy and the Trojans because everybody wants to have an origin myth that's a bit like Rome. That yeah. bit like, you know, the origin myth of, of Rome is that Aeneas, the yeah. hero Aeneas, leaves Troy when the Troy is destroyed and he goes off and has wonderful adventures in the Mediterranean and that's the subject of Virgil's Aeneas and then he lands up in Italy and then from him springs the great you know dynasty that will produce Romulus and Remus and they will found Rome and Britain has got I mean I love this myth so much Britain has got its own Trojan origin myth that's in Geoffrey of Monmouth right that um Brutus or Brute sailed with with a descendant of one of these Trojan refugees and came and founded or at least founded one of the sort of wellsprings of the British people. Yeah, he's the great-grandson of Aeneas. And didn't um, Elizabeth I's Magus, John Dee, presented Elizabeth I with a genealogy that's put her right back as directly descended from this mythical character, Brutus, which I just think is so beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that this was the dominant history of Britain until the 16th century. It was the, you know, it's what you learned, the brute myth, the brute legend, and especially if you were English, because by then it had been thoroughly appropriated by the English crown, uh, even though it's it really is an origin myth for the Britons, the Celtic Britons. One thing that struck me as I was reading your wonderful book and I was completely transported by it was you know the antiquity of the sources you're using and how they underpin so much of this later European literature 
And so basically, you know, Virgil, Ovid, obviously the, the Roman sort of interpreters of the Greek stuff were widely read in the Middle Ages. And Geoffrey of Monmouth, who you know, writes that the first brute legend is heavily influenced by them. And you see so many echoes. The uh, one that I was particularly struck by was the mother bearing her breasts to try and placate her son, you know, her now grown up, warring, angry, violent son. And, uh, and that motif occurs in your book and it occurs in Storyland with quite different uh, results. <laughs> That's really interesting because I think what we're touching on in a sense is there's no such thing as an original myth here. Like all these stories are being reactivated and retold and made meaningful for the moment that they're in. And there are elements of classical myth that find their way into these you know, incredibly different story world for me of medieval literature. But also this process is going on throughout antiquity. So there's no original telling. Everything's a contamination. Euripides is taking moments from Homer and making them his own and angling the stories into his needs for the moment. And Sophocles is doing that. And then and this process is iterative. So it's going on and on and on and on. And when you start retelling, I'm standing in a very different cultural and religious and social space from the world of antiquity. So, of course, these myths occupy different parts of our mind and understanding. And they, they certainly serve very different cultural and religious purposes. I suppose a simple way of saying that is that I don't believe in Zeus and Hera and the iris but you are picking up a tradition when you do this kind of retelling of being as it were faithful in a way it's quite hard to describe this isn't it i mean you're you one is in lockstep and in love with the source material but also inevitably and i think one has to be very self-conscious about that and confess to it <laughs> of course with your own preoccupations your own prejudices and your own creative mind at work, right? Where to point the camera, what elements to expand and draw out, what elements to contract. And and certainly once doing that, I don't know how you would stand in, in relation to where you are with your source material. Yeah, I think so. This uh, topic, it's, it put me in mind of a wonderful genealogical role in the Bodleian Library uh, called Bodley Rolls Three. And it was produced when Edward I was claiming overlordship of Scotland. It was kept in an abbey in York, probably for consultation by the crown. And it shows the whole, the royal, a royal genealogy from Brutus, the founder of Britain, all the way down seamlessly, apparently seamlessly to Edward I. And it implies very heavily his overlordship of Britain. And that's been argued by many scholars. Uh, but it, before you get into the very dense diagram, genealogical diagram, you have a series of narrative roundels. And those roundels begin with uh, Jason and his quest for the Golden Fleece. And they flow through to the fall of Troy. And then that goes through to Aeneas's migration and the arrival of Brutus. And then finally, Brutus's sacrifice to the goddess Diana and her prophecy that he will go to an empty island west of Gaul in the ocean and found a new Troy and a race of kings to rule the whole round world. And so you can see there how these classical myths are being plucked out of their original context and completely reappropriated for Edward I's political aims. 
And so that's happening in relation to your material. And equally, then the British myth, the stuff that's retold by Geoffrey of Monmouth, stories like Lear and Cordelia, which we all think we know through Shakespeare, but of course, has quite a different ending in the British version, where Cordelia outlives her father by five years and is torn from the throne by rebels led by her sister's sons. And, um, and their main objection is that she's a woman. This would have had massive resonance in the mid-12th century when this text was written down because the Empress Matilda was vying for the English throne, 1136 around then, was vying for the English throne with uh, Stephen and lost it. So yeah, I think that political relevance and the bias in the retelling is constant, as you say. And it really put wind in my sails in, in my own telling of the stories that we both place uh, the, put the camera on the shoulder of female characters, perhaps more than is in the original sources. I think in your case, there are some incredibly powerful female figures that just call to be retold, which is what you've done. You know, it's great. I, I suppose the, the larger question is what, what was your spin on the retelling? Did you go in into it with a conscious agenda or did you just let it flow? I suppose there are kind of big kind of personal reasons why each of us sets out on writing a book like well, any kind of book. And then there, there may be something incredibly pragmatic and um, practical and unglamorous, which is, for me, that my editor, Jonathan Cake, we went out for a drink together and she said, why don't you do a book of Greek myths? So it was a very pragmatic, she just had the idea. And, and yes, it was a very natural thing for her in retrospect to suggest because I had done a bit of myth retelling. The, the story of um, Ariadne and Theseus is kind of woven through my previous book, which is a book about mazes and labyrinths called Red Threat. So I had dipped my toes into the idea of just of, of, of story narrative, um, quite unlike most of my sort of non-fiction, narrative non-fiction work. So I, I've got that... Um, and then I suppose I felt, well, my first instinct actually was to go, well, you know, what about Robert Graves? Because for me, I think perhaps maybe unlike for you, I, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but I, for me, it felt like there were lots of big, mostly male, actually, in kind of classic compendial retellings of Greek myths, very much looking over my shoulder, absolutely Robert Graves, but also many, many books geared for children, including the wonderful work of Roger Lancelin Green, who I adore, and the book that I grew up on as a child, a fabulous book called Children of the Gods by Kenneth MacLeish. You know, once I started pondering it, two things became clear to me. One is that I felt there was room for, and my editor felt there was a room for a book that wasn't geared towards children. And by that, I mean, it doesn't, something that doesn't try to sanitise the sheer ugliness and nastiness, actually, of a lot of these stories. But also a lot of the retellings do edit out, the, as you say, the very strong female characters that are present in the ancient sources. And also, you know, Robert Graves, as marvellous and as great, undoubtedly, he is. He is regarded, I think, as, as a kind of neutral retailer of Greek myths, as an authoritative retailer of Greek myths. And that's just simply not true. I mean, his retellings of myths are absolutely infused with the theories of his time and often his own very now strange, those are infused in ideas of James Fraser and the Golden Bough and all that stuff. So not to invalidate that, but just it sort of came to me eventually that there was there's always room actually for another. And so bringing all that together, I felt I could embark on it. And when you ask about whether there was an agenda, yes, I did want to, to sort of widen the 
camera angle to include a lot of these incredible female characters who are in the sources. But I'm not offering a kind of Madeline Miller or Natalie Haynes or Pat Barker style restitution or filling out the gaps quite in that novelistic way. It's a, it's a different thing. I was going to say just, I, I compared your telling of Prokme and Philomela with the retelling in Ovid. I don't know whether that's a valid comparison, but it's not like you actually ramp up the brutality or activity of those female characters in your telling. It's very much on a par, I felt, with with their proactivity in the Ovid re- um, version. Yeah, Ovid is the source for that story that is the most obvious source. I mean, there are sources that we don't really have. Well, what use is that? But anyway, Sophocles wrote a play, which I'd love to have read. <laughs> anyway... We don't have it anymore, so I couldn't. Maybe it's hiding in the sands of Egypt in a, in a papyrus. You never know. I mean, fragments of it have been found that way. But the story, yes, that story, which is, for those of you who don't know, I won't tell it in its fullest because, A, it's quite long, and B, it is quite nasty. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the point is, and, and this is one of the... Philomela is really important for the way I structured the book because Philomela has a sister, Procne, and Procne marries a man called Tyrius, and to cut a long story short, Tyrius rapes Philomela, i.e. his sister-in-law, and to prevent her from standing witness or, or bearing witness to what's happened to her, he cuts out her tongue. However, Philomela does bear witness to what happened to her by weaving the story of her rape. And then she therefore takes incredibly powerful agency over the story itself because that is itself a plot development that leads to a kind of gruesome denouement. But actually, I mean, this going back to actually what you were sort of saying when you compared my retelling to Ovid's, thanks. <laughs> He's such a great poet, kind of worm. But um, yeah, he was the source. But actually, do you know what? I tamped it down a bit because the one thing that Ovid does, and this presented me with a problem, is that he spectacularizes the rape of Philomela so extremely um, that it's very hard to know. He, he, he's a very visual poet and he presents you with a very visual scene that is almost sort of transgressively so. It's hard to tell whether he is showing you the rape in all its horror to say, look, this is appalling, this violence, or whether he's, uh, or whether he's asking you in some kind of perverse way to slightly take pleasure in it and and so there are elements of his poetics and his description of the rape that I did not include and that was my creative decision yeah and that I think reflects a modern sensibility in that sense as well as your own uh, sensibility as a woman and I suppose that is also reflecting the time in which we live yeah I mean I suppose I said that I wanted to give a bit more give more space to female characters and that does present you with this particular dilemma because nearly all my authors are male I mean all but one and my original authors and they are expressing female experience from the outside that said some of them are much better much more sensitive and imaginative at doing that than others so I suppose one thing that I did do was try and imagine these events from the inside rather than the outside. And, and and it wasn't, you know, that's not an original thought. Euripides did that the entire time, actually. Euripides, a male playwright, was a remarkable figure in his empathy and imagining of female experience. And, you know, one thing that he does in his great play, Ion, is give a female character the opportunity to describe her rape. 
So not for, for us, the viewer, to see it from the outside as a kind of picturesque scene, but, you know, he lends his imagination to the horrific experience. And so, you know, all of these things are going on. And I think it must operate a bit differently for you, Amy, because of this of the nature of your sources. I mean, I guess you've got fewer of them for a start. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of violence against women in the sources. And I treated it very gingerly in that it's a sensitive topic and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to really cause any harm to readers in your telling. There's, within the original sources, there's a kind of dismissiveness. I didn't sense a kind of voyeurism on the part of the narrators necessarily, but it's a sort of, ah, and then she was attacked and that's, you know, that's that. And then a saint was born, which is, a, you know, <laughs> uh, shows that it was somehow ordained. But I think one interesting example is in Geoffrey of Monmouth. There are lots of other sources in Storyland. It's just he's such an interesting one to come back to. Um, it's with the conception of King Arthur. It starts with a descendant of Joseph of Arimathea, who founds the first church in Britain at Avalon, now Glastonbury, perhaps. I mean, it didn't happen anyway. But his great, 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 great granddaughter is called Igraine. She's married to the Earl of Cornwall, Gaulois. And they've gone to a feast at the court of Uther Pendragon. And Uther is, so he spies her, he likes her, he starts sending drinks and nice bits of, uh, of food to her seat to kind of woo her. And she uh, she gets quite hot under the collar and then her husband notices and gets very angry and he storms out of the feast taking a grain with him and Uther swears he will have revenge for this insult. And so uh, Uther and Gaulois end up at war. And this is the first civil war, essentially, in Britain since the reign of a very uh, bad usurper king called Vortigern. So everyone's very disappointed because they thought the British line was onto a good thing. And, and then Uther's gone and caused this, this battle over a woman, which I think is another big theme in both of our books, whether or not women really are the cause of great wars. And Igraine is dumped at Tintagel by her husband uh, to find out, you know, just to wait and see what will happen. And he goes off to... Um, to Demelioc, which is now associated with the Tigria Rounds in Cornwall, to meet Uther. And basically, Uther says to Merlin, I'm absolutely desperate to sleep with a grain. Merlin realises that nothing's going to resolve until the king gets his way. And so he enables Uther to disguise himself as Gaulois and go to Tintagel and and says to Igraine that uh, he's come home to protect her, that he was worried about her. And the way it's told in the original, in the Geoffrey of Monmouth's uh, version is, you know, it says, and by these sort of, dis- by this disguise and by his deceiving words, she believes him. And that night she gave him everything that he asked for. And there's an ambivalence in that phrasing where you, you sympathise with a grain and you feel as though Geoffrey of Monmouth is asking you to sympathise with her. And in that union, Arthur is conceived. So that is, that is you know, it's a rape. And it's it's an interesting thing that everyone associates Tintagel with Arthur and there's this statue of him as a full, fully grown man on the, on the headland there. But I think the really interesting story at Tintagel is a grain's. That's so interesting. And, and you, you also mentioned... Vortigern in there, and which puts me in mind of, I mean, again, you know, I come across some of these stories in relation to my study of Roman Britain, which actually is not connected to this particular book of mine, this recent book of mine. But, you know, if, if you're studying the end of Roman Britain as a historical period, 
what actually happens is that you headbutt yourself into what you treat here as mythological stories because you know that the, the the sources for the end of Roman Britain and the beginning of sort of you know crudely the beginning of Anglo-Saxon Britain we all know it's a bit more complicated than that you know it is stories of Hengist and Horsa and it is um, the possibility of some kind of Romano Britain leftover called Arthur <laughs> and you know battles of certain battles fought and it is so fascinating that you know you as a historian of Roman Britain you come out of this very well you know, it's patchy, but at times incredibly well-documented historical period of these islands. And then you slide into this period, which is absolutely kind of shrouded in myth. I'm, you know, I'm not a straight historian. I'm an art historian. And I tend to dabble more in, in cultural artefacts than kind of working out whether... <laughs> what Nennius or Gilda say is strictly true. What I think is very clear is the emotion behind their retellings and the reality of the trauma of invasion and the power of stories written in those moments of intense cultural seismic upheaval. And so that's that's something which I think makes them so powerful. You know, Gildas talks about the Romans suppressing Christianity in the land and how there was a man called Alban who lived in the city of very, I'm going to say it wrong now, very lamium, very lamium. Very lamium. Thank you very much. One of my friends, yeah, yeah. Was, that's, that's, yeah, Romans and Aldermans, basically. Still see the remains of it today. He hides a priest called Amphibalus because you feel sorry for him. He's being persecuted for his faith. And that actually, the, the, he and this priest form a very close bond. The funny thing is that Amphibalus just means cloak. He gives the priest his cloak to hide. But then there was some kind of confusion, the Chinese whispers in the translations, and then, and then this priest ended up being called cloak. It's a sort of quite an interesting confusion. But um, but Alban at one point, when he, he then becomes a Christian and he ends up becoming this great saint, and when he's being led to his execution, he parts the Thames. In Gildas, it's the Thames. In later versions, it's it's the Ver, the river there. Um, but he, he does a kind of a Moses job on the Thames and uh, walks across the riverbed. And so, that, you know, I don't think that story is true strictly, but I do think what it tells us about this Gildas figure when he was writing and the, the different cultures that were colliding and the different religious beliefs. And yeah, I just, I think it's, I almost don't care about history. Oh, I, I, I'm actually <laughs> with you on that because I, I mean, I did, you know, I, I felt a bit mean asking you that question because actually I, when I'm in these stories, I really don't care. I have no interest in whether the Trojan War happened, right? And I think people can get very stuck on the historical reality of these stories. I think Pat Barker said something really very wise uh, when she was writing about her recent novel, Trojan Women, when she said, history is always then, myth is always now. And there is this kind of sense that, you know, the value of these myths is not to, not to tell us anything particularly precise or exact about misty, misty time. Their job is to tell us something about ourselves now. I mean, that is how... They've, they were invoked at the moment that they, they were being written, if you described beautifully with the Cordelia story and how important it was politically in that moment. Um, and that's also true of you know the way Euripides in the 5th century BCE used stories of the Trojan War that he gleaned from Homer 
for him also quite a misty time in the past. But he used those stories to really speak of the trauma of Athens's wars with Sparta and using those stories to talk about things like, you know, things that resonate with us, which is why we put on those plays of Euripides, things like collateral damage or PTSD or, you know, moral injury, uh, the, you know, the, the breakdown of moral certitudes during wars, like the bad things that happen during wars. And those are the resonant truths. And I'm much less interested in which layer of Troy, you know, that Heinrich Schliemann, I wouldn't say excavated, kind of bashed his way through, you know, represents the Troy of King Priam. I think actually, the, the, well, I mean, it's not my work. And on the other hand, also, I, I've got a feeling that it is sort of, futile in a sense. It dismisses a very interesting story, doesn't it? The interesting story is how that whatever it was, was taken and transplanted and stuff was grafted on and things were... And the, the stories that blossomed out of whatever that thing was that it, it began as, if, you, if it, you can say it had a beginning. That's the fact. It's like that with the Arthurian legend. You know, I don't really care whether Arthur existed. What is fascinating is how this figure took on in fiction a life of its own and how then loads of different kings and queens use that idea to create... I mean, Edward III consciously imitated the fictional court of Arthur in order to make people have this faith in his political ambitions and in you know the, the round table according to um, the sort of 13th century retellings of the Arthurian myth, says, you know, that the men that sit at it are bonded by such a strong love that any of them would die for the other one. And that that was his famous story. And so when Edward III has his round table in his court and his knights sit round it, the implication is that they would die for each other. And that's really, really important for his political aims, that baronial unity, because what has undone kings before him has been essentially, you know, dispute within the country itself, within the parliament. If you're embarking on this voyage at all, then you believe that fiction has power, that that has bearing on your choice of stories, because you do feel like you've got to put something into people's hands that's going to feed them in some way. I was very interested in this idea of these women weaving and why you came to that decision, how it might have influenced the style of your prose as well. Thanks for asking that. The reason I chose to organise my myths with this very tight structure that was, as you say, it's ekphrasis, and ekphrasis is the sort of Greek word that relates to offering narrative through the description of a physical object. And that's it's a really Greek and Roman thing to do. So the first super famous example is right back in Homer's Iliad, and it's the description of the shield of Achilles, which is a wonderful God-made piece of kit (laughs) decorated with remarkable scenes. And the scenes take off into sort of sound and movement. One forgets, in other words, we're invited to forget that they are material objects. And it's a a wonderful um, and thrilling, I think, ancient trope. And there's a particularly apposite one in um, a poem by Catullus, cheerfully called Catullus 64. You know, a lot of the works that we're using don't really have names. They're just kind of called Codex 4B, you know, subsection. This is called Catullus 64. (laughs) And there's a mini epic, which you start... You start by thinking it's going to tell you the story of Jason and the Argonauts, but it kind of brilliantly shifts focus to tell us about the wedding 
of one of the Argonauts, Peleus, who is marrying the goddess Thetis, who's the mother, will become the mother of Achilles, or they will become the parents of Achilles. And we're taken into the house where the wedding is, which is this gorgeous house full of beautiful, rich objects, into the centre of their house, the, uh, and into the bedroom where there is a marriage bed spread with the most remarkable tapestry, textile, which is decorated with scenes of Ariadne and Theseus and the Minotaur. And that description takes up nearly the entire poem. So it's an ephrasis that takes over the narrative absolutely entirely. It's absolutely wonderful. And you are invited to forget really super quickly that this is a textile. It just becomes a story. It just sort of takes off in your head. Yes, there's a fiction within a fiction. And there's real aesthetic delight in that, isn't there? That you've, you've been tricked. You feel like you've been tricked multiple times, but you're doing it willingly. It's like going into a maze or, or having a magician. You know, it's like you, you consent to be tricked with these kinds of narrative devices. It's a really lovely way of putting it. And it, 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 yeah, there's so much pleasure in that. It's when, it's when there's a piece, it's like when there's a piece of theatre that shows you that it's a piece of theatre and that there is artifice involved. And yet the, the, the pleasure is, is, is in both following the story and in understanding that something magical and wonderful is being done to you. So it, so it's all of that. So there's, there was, that was one reason. And the other reason is that, as I sort of mentioned before, there are a lot of moments in Greek and Roman literature where female characters take control of the narrative through the act of weaving. And once you've got your textile spectacles on, and reading Greek and Roman literature, these ob these these moments become more and more um, obvious. So, I mean, incredibly famously, of course, Penelope, when she's waiting in Ithaca for Odysseus, the errant Odysseus, to return after 20 years, she's besieged by suitors asking her to choose one of them. And she says, no, I will choose, I will choose one of you, but only when I've finished weaving my father-in-law's shroud. And then every night she unravels it. And so and then starts weaving again to delay the moment of choice. And also she delays the end of the poem because this is a very powerful plot device as well as a kind of, um, as well as a self-security. I mean, she's looking after her own interests. So those are a couple of reasons, but also I think kind of at a kind of very molecular level, the idea of text and textile as they are in English through Latin, so connected etymologically and metaphorically. And so running through Latin and Greek, we have these ideas about story being quite like textile and the metaphor. I mean, we have it in our own language as well, you know, when we um, you follow the thread of a story or let's tell each other a yarn. These ideas are really, really in Greek and Roman literature. And so I like this idea of these, these female characters weaving and the storytelling being absolutely sort of in the language and in the metaphor. And that was a kind of really good carrier and I like and I love the sort of pretending the sort of this sort of pretense that it's a visual object we're looking at I think the fascinating thing when it comes to these myths is that you know some of them so there are details preserved in visual sources aren't there like on on vases and in ceramics that might not be preserved in text and in the same way there's you know you you play with this idea of the the visual object. I think when I read the, uh, the Ovid's, it was a tr in translation, obviously, uh, story of Proctor and Philip Philomela, um, Procne even. It's not clear whether she writes her fate on the tapestry or makes an image. 
And I think it's, I was interested in the kind of permeable membrane between text, textile, visual image, the fact that you chose illustrations in your book as well by Chris O'Filly. And I think in the creation of Storyland, I found when I was actually making it, I had to move between illustration and writing. And I was also making up silly songs on the piano to try and orbit the emotions that were central to the stories. And Charlotte, when I was reading, I was so transported by your descriptions of landscape. I mean, you know, actual landscapes, the real kind of Mediterranean, the precision with which you name different types of flower and tree, uh, different kinds of animals, and also, you know, the landscape of the underworld. I thought that kind of world building was absolutely sensational. I felt completely immersed in that. And I, I could visualize it so clearly. And it felt very original. I haven't, you know, read tons and tons of descriptions of the underworld, but uh, that one was particularly sharp in my imagination. Then your descriptions of Gaia, and she's a very sympathetic character, this kind of Mother Earth figure. I just wondered how you thought about your um, descriptions of landscape and the environment and the climate. I'm particularly touched about that because I I do sort of care about wildlife and um, the environment and stuff. And I'm just I'm very lucky that I was brought up in a family that was very passionate about wildlife. And my, and particularly, I have an older brother who is a sort of extraordinary naturalist and a kind of endless source of advice and knowledge. I mean, my, my stories cover a lot of geography, actually. They're not just all in Greece. But I'm not a big traveller in Greece. I haven't been to Greece that many times. So often this is this is a kind of... And certainly, I tell you what, um, Amy, I've never been to the underworld. Oh, haven't you? So, oh, it's lovely. Um, you should go. This... It's great this time of year. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, of course, you're sort of building, like you say, you're, you're sort of building an imagined landscape. That said, I did spend a lot of time... At, when I was finishing the book in the first lockdown, I spent a lot of time on Google satellite and Google maps and looking at videos of gorgeous places in Greece thinking, oh, yeah. oh my <laughs> oh, goodness torture. me, if only I could be there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the environment, the climate thing, I was doing a lot of this writing when there were wildfires in California and there were terrible floods here in Britain. And I mean, clearly we are living in a time of appalling environmental catastrophe. And the aspect of classical literature that thinks quite deeply about human impact on landscape and you know, human intervention in nature and how damaging that can be. That aspect just rose up off the page when I was rereading stuff like Ovid and, and Sophocles actually, um, all kinds of authors this is really important to. And so it just felt incredibly natural to draw out those aspects of stories like, say, Phython, who through his own rashness and stupidity, his inability to work out the consequences beforehand, destroys himself. He 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 borrows his father, the sun god's chariot, and flies too far away from the earth. He is the sun at that point. He's driving the sun god's chariot so that the earth freezes and he drives far too close to the earth, causing it to burn up. And the descriptions that Ovid offers of this are incredibly resonant of this parched earth with this disaster-covered earth. And so, yes, like I say, it seemed it seemed totally natural to to, to, to kind of go with those aspects. They, they seemed incredibly, well, they just want to talk to us now. And how about you? Because the deeply myth-led 
British landscape and, you know, every inch of it is sort of covered, it's dripping in story. And the story and the land go so, so closely together. It's so richly described in your book. I think we we need stories about things to love them, don't we? We I think that's that's how he, the human mind works. And if we walk into a place and it recalls nothing to our minds and and it will stir no emotion, you know, it's um, I have I have a like you said, you know, my family is very um, interested in the natural world. My my auntie was a Dominican sister in the New Forest, and she used to take me for walks. And I can remember her. I remember us crouching down, and she picked up this this piece of uh, a woodpecker dropping, and broke it in half, and showed me the exoskeletons of the of the ants within. And um, and as a child, it was so exciting to to home in on these details of nature and these, these, you know, this is how you identify a uh, the droppings of a green woodpecker. Um, and, and it was, I, I felt that very strongly as opposed to larger views of the landscape, which as I grew up, I came to appreciate. And I think it was interesting to kind of graduate in that way. Um, and as I wrote Storyland, it was, became increasingly important to me to pick out those details that are specific to a place so that when people from the Clent Hills or from Dudley <laughs> uh, read the story of St. Canelm and his, and his him, the, the red earth in which he is buried, they would go, yes, when we take our picnic on a Saturday up to the Clent Hills, we have to get the red earth out of our shoes when we get back in the car, you know, that kind of thing. It's th those things that will make the people from those places um, feel as though there's a there's a reality to the stories despite the great time that has elapsed in between them notionally oh i love that so much i i hate to my equivalent to the getting the soil type of the hills around dudley right was <laughs> reading an incredibly long article on the botany of mount pelion right um, so yeah. as i could get just right the herb the extraordinary plants that medea might have picked um, yes. To, uh, yeah. To use I enjoyed that, that section. There's, I, I'm friends with a poet called Sean Hewitt, who did a retelling of an Irish medieval legend called Buila Sweeney or the Madness of Sweeney. And in the Irish version, uh, it, this, this, this character has been cursed to fly until he dies, basically by a saint. And he roams the landscape. He spends some time in Britain. Uh, and at one point, I believe so Sean told me, so I think I understood this correctly. The Irish language version lists some plants that he has been living off or within. And some of the, the Irish words in this old Irish are, are now unknowns. So they don't know what, what the plants are it's describing. And he says in his retelling, plants so old as to be lost between the lips of men, I think is the term he uses. And so I think those details are just very powerful for some reason. It does have bearing on the current situation we are in with the climate in terms of my treatment of the landscape, because it really matters to me that we care about the natural environments that we live in. And I think that stories are such an important way of, of doing that. Of in, in, or one, you know, There are so many ways that we, we can collaborate to inspire that care in each other. And stories is one of them. And so the fact that, that many of these legends are very specific in where they're set, it might be a small hill next to Snowdon, or it might be uh, the confluence of two rivers. You know, it says that King Lear is buried under uh, the river Saw, um, near Leicester and 
Uh, and that's that's a wonderful specific moment. And also there's a kind of relationship between nature and the characters that is that is magical. And that's that's a lovely place to escape to. You know, I darted out from my <laughs> from under my rock whenever lockdowns lifted to try and visit some of the places. Um, and it and because of the way COVID is it, you know, the lockdowns lifted when the weather was warmer. So <laughs> that was nice. Um, if, if there are any perks to the situation. And um, there was one place in particular, it was Khan Gafalt in, in Wales, in Radnorshire, uh, where King Arthur's dog had supposedly imprinted a stone with, the, uh, with his paw. Um, and the, King Arthur's dog is called Kabal or Kafal, and, uh, and the hill is, still bears his name. And um, I had done my best. I've been like, oh, I've been to Welsh hills loads. I can write about this landscape. You know, do, 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 I've got this right. Uh, it's really big. Yeah, it's like super big. And I thought I, I thought I could evoke it. And then I went there and oh my goodness, the just the wildness and the sky and the sheets of rain. And for one, you know, one moment we were being battered with enormous hailstones, and the next moment it was this gorgeous sunlight coming through. And then just the the magnitude and the fact that this was then being presented in in the medieval texts as a place that Arthur's hunt had passed through as part of a, a an enormous journey from Ireland through Wales across the Severn down into Cornwall and I thought this is characterizing Arthur you know if you knew this landscape like and felt it the way I feel now standing here it's a way of describing just how big and powerful Arthur is without having to say Arthur was really big and powerful yeah, I just, I just loved that moment of, oh, of, of, yeah. um, of experience. The way, these, the way these stories live in their landscapes. Yes. Like, I went to Mount Olympus this September and I'd never been there before. And with this, with this sort of feeling of great joy of being there, but also this feeling of actually regret <laughs> that I'm, I saw the real Olympus only after I had described the, the mansions of the gods on its peak. But there again, you know, Sometimes one just has to rely on the imagination. I, I felt when I started writing Storyland, and I feel having read your book, that the, ca the, the landscape is a character that pervades both stories and persists in reality. And that's the lovely thing. It's the thing that really links us to those narratives. Amy, it's just been an absolute joy to, to speak to you. And I should say... For everyone listening, that Storyland, A New Mythology of Britain by Amy Jeffs has to be bought. It is absolutely superb and I highly, highly recommend it. Likewise, Charlotte. And everybody, Charlotte Higgins' Greek Myths, A New Retelling is in shops now with beautiful illustrations by Chris O'Philly. And they look so good side by side on the shelves as we have repeated throughout this podcast. Thank you so much. What a great adventure. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. 
And we also use our cutting edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.